Good morning. Thank you, Mike, for reading the text that I prepared to preach. Really awkward if you read something and I just had to wing it. Uh, we will be, as, uh, as Mike read, in Romans 14, 20 through 23 this morning. As you uh, turn to Romans 14, I want to tell you about something that I got to do yesterday, something that I love that I don't get to do all that often. And so a group of guys got together and, uh, and we played basketball. This is something that uh, I enjoy doing but uh, don't uh, get a chance to do it all that often. And uh, I had a lot of fun, except when I got punched in the nose while going for a rebound. And, uh, and so if I sound a little nasally as I'm preaching, it's Corey Steiner's fault. And uh, so you can, uh, you can blame him or congratulate him, whatever uh, you want to do. But this got me thinking about uh, other things that I love to do that I just, for whatever reason, circumstance of life, I just don't get an opportunity to do all that often. And so I started thinking of all the different sports uh, that I enjoy. I enjoy flag football and tennis and soccer and basketball and softball. I enjoy camping. I never get to go camping these days. My wife is not as big a fan uh, of camping. And when I try to take my daughter camping in the backyard, uh, she just jumps on me the entire time. And, uh, and so that's not as much fun for me. Uh, going to the movies. I love going to the movies. I found in my jacket pocket this morning the last ticket stub of the last movie I ever went to, uh, which was December 29th, 2017. I saw one of the, I guess, the newest Star Wars at the time. And, uh, and then rock climbing. Rock climbing is something that I used to really enjoy when I was in college. They had this huge rock climbing wall in the rec center at A&M, but it's been some 20 years since I've, uh, I've uh, climbed rocks. But the other day, my uh, in-laws were talking about this movie that they watched called Free Solo, which uh, won the best documentary Oscar recently. I haven't seen it, but from 30 seconds of Google research, uh, I found out that it's about a guy whose name is Alex Honnold. I might be missing that uh, pronunciation. Uh, and, uh, and his sort of claim to fame in this documentary is that he climbs El Capitan. Raise your hand if you know what El Capitan is, all right? Not a lot of you, but it's this sheer rock face 3,000 feet, uh, nearly vertical, uh, that is uh, in Yosemite National Park. And so that in and of itself is impressive. I've never climbed a 3,000-foot rock face. Uh, but what makes it even more impressive, impressive is the fact that he did it uh, without the help of ropes. And, uh, and so he literally is just up there like uh, Tom Cruise in Mission Impossible or something, just climbing this rock face with no ropes whatsoever. If he falls, he is just certainly going to die. Now imagine that I go home today, imagine that I go home today and that I watch that documentary and I decide, you know what, that is something that I definitely need to try. I haven't climbed, like I said, in, uh, in over 20 years and I wasn't that good uh, whenever I actually uh, did it, but I think, you know what, I'm somewhat athletic and I'm quite arrogant and so I'm just going to do it. And so I, uh, I pack up my car in the morning uh, I drive out to California to Yosemite, and I hike to El Capitan, and I just start climbing. The really good news is I'm probably not going to die, but the only reason is because I'm not going to make it far enough up the mountain to actually die whenever, whenever I inevitably fall. I, I give it like maybe 10 feet or so, and so I'm going to be really sore, kind of like my nose is sore this morning, but I'm not actually going to die. But imagine, if you will, that I somehow miraculously make it up like 100 feet or so. Well, in that case, the chances of me uh, dying are about 100% at this point. 
The only scenarios where I actually survive all involve something like uh, Pegasus or a flying carpet or a Quidditch broom or Lord of the, Re- uh, the Rings sort of eagles. So probably unlikely. And, uh, and so now I'm dead. I've fallen off this uh, rock face and now I'm dead. And that sort of morbid scenario reminds me of our passage this morning. Throughout chapter 14, we have been talking about what are called issues that are adiaphora. We'll put that word up on, uh, on the board so you can see how it is spelled. And, uh, and so don't just try to send a text message or write an email or something with this word. It will all, always autocorrect. Microsoft Word does not recognize the word adiaphora. What are adiaphora issues? Well, they're morally neutral things that are neither commanded nor restricted by Scripture. They're morally neutral things that are neither commanded nor restricted uh, in Scripture. And so lots of things are commanded in Scripture for us. Uh, It is commanded in Scripture that we uh, belong to a church. It's commanded in Scripture that we pray. It's commanded in Scripture uh, that we uh, love others and that we serve others. It's commanded in Scripture that we read the Bible. There are lots of things that are commanded in Scripture. There's also a whole lot of things that are restricted in Scripture. Adultery, blasphemy, murder, assault, theft, lying, and on and on we could go with things that are restricted in Scripture. But there are also a lot of morally neutral things that Scripture doesn't command, nor does it restrict. You can do it, but you don't have to do it. And uh, and so we've talked about uh, these over the past few weeks. Things like uh, driving a car, Drinking alcohol, watching television, dancing, playing cards, playing dominoes, wearing green on St. Patty's Day, on on and on we could go. Wearing jean shorts, wearing socks with sandals. You might not do this because you have a particular fashion sense, but that doesn't mean that it's somehow forbidden in Scripture. So these are what we mean whenever we use the word adiaphora. These are these uh, issues that are morally neutral, that are neither commanded nor restricted in Scripture. In the first century context of Romans, uh, in the first century context in which Paul is writing, the things that he's talking about, these adiaphora issues, uh, concern these questions of ceremonial purity, questions of what is clean and what is unclean. Things like uh, what days should you celebrate feasts and festivals, and whether or not you should eat meat or whether or not you should drink wine, uh, particularly meat or wine which had been sacrificed to idols. And Paul has categorized Christians, he's categorized the entire church in one of two categories. He's uh, categorized us as either the strong or the weak in regards to how our conscience relates to these sort of, uh, of issues. And so the strong recognize that I can do this or I don't have to do this. The, the strong recognize I have freedom. The strong recognizes this is a morally neutral issue, whereas Paul would say that the weak uh, has a a weak conscience on these issues. They think that they can't. They think that it's better. They think that it's wiser to do this or to not do this or whatever uh, it might be. And inevitably, the weak, the weaker brothers and sisters tend to judge the strong for their freedom, whereas the strong tend to despise the weak for their weakness. That's what we've been talking about over the past three weeks, and we will somewhat wrap up this uh, morning, but we will uh, actually see a little bit of, uh, of it in our, um, uh, our sermon next week. So with that in mind, let's consider again this illustration, this opening illustration. 
Now, is it foolish to climb El Capitan without ropes? I, I would absolutely say it is foolish, but that's not the point of the illustration. The point is that this guy, Alex Honnold, he has freedom to do something that I do not have freedom to do. Because he is a strong climber, whereas I am a very weak climber, he has a freedom to be able to do something that I cannot do. If I try to do what he has strength and freedom to do, then I actually end up dying. That's what our passage is about this morning, that we've warned the weak not to judge the strong, but now Paul is going to turn his attention to the strong, and he's going to warn them lest they exercise their freedom to the destruction or to the death or to the detriment of the weak. Like if Alex Honnold, he personally calls me up and he pressures me into free climbing with him. That's the point of our text this morning. So let's pray, and then we will uh, dive in together. I want to ask that you would just first pray for yourself that the Lord would give you an ability to hear from His Word this morning, that you would treasure His Word, that you might be changed by it. Every one of us who comes in to this room this, uh, this morning needs to be changed. Maybe the change needs to be from unbelief to belief. Maybe the change is simply just a degree of glory to another as you're conformed to the image of Christ. And now would you pray that not only for yourself, but for those around you, friends and family and strangers. And then would you pray for me that there would be boldness and faithfulness that I would stick to and tether myself to God's Word and be faithful. So Father, we ask that You would incline our hearts to Your testimonies, that You would open our eyes, that we would behold wonderful things in Your Word, that You would unite our hearts to fear Your name and satisfy us this morning with Your steadfast love because You're a good Father and You give good gifts. And so we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Look at verse 14 of Romans 4, uh, sorry, verse 20 of Romans 14, where Paul writes, Do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. We'll begin with this first sentence. Do not for the sake of God destroy, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. This is an antithesis to what we read last week in verse 19. So we'll put that back on the screen, and you can see uh, the relationship. So then let us pursue what makes for peace, and then look at this next phrase, and for mutual upbuilding. What's the opposite of building up? Tearing down, destroying. That's what we're talking about here in, uh, in uh, uh, verse 20. This would be a really good one for my daughter to learn. She always wants to play blocks with me. She wants to build a tower. And by that, she means she wants me to build a tower. And then what does she inevitably do? Knock it down. Anyone with kids knows this. This is the funnest part for her. The, the part that is most fun for her is not the building of it. It's the tearing of it down. And that's the image. The image of me trying to build this thing while my daughter knocks it over is the image of the proud, the, the image of the stronger brother in his pride and in his arrogance boasting over the tearing down of the church as the corpses of the weak kind of lie strewn about in uh, the rubble. That's the image here. And Paul uses this strong word destroy, which is parallel to what we've seen throughout the context. It's parallel to causing a brother to stumble in verse 13. It's parallel to grieving them in verse 15. In fact, we've already seen that relationship in, uh, in verse 15, which says, for if your brother is grieved... By what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy 
the one for whom Christ died. So grieving isn't simply making someone mad. Grieving isn't simply offending someone or making them sad or making them mad or annoying them or something like that. And stumbling isn't simply the type of stumbling that you might do if you trip over building blocks or Legos or whatever uh, it might be. It's not stubbing your toe. It's far more than just a sprained ankle or something like that. The image in Romans 14 of stumbling into sin would be kind of the image if you tumbled off the face of El Capitan. This is a huge thing that's at stake here. The, the, the word destroy, it paints to this picture of eschatological destruction. So what does it mean to be grieved? What does it mean to be destroyed? What does it mean to stumble into sin? I want to give a little bit of the historical context because I think that can help clarify what we're talking about, that we're not merely talking about someone being offended or annoyed or upset with you for doing something. We're talking about something far more serious. And so let's talk about the historical context. We've brought a little bit of this uh, out over the past couple of weeks, but I think it's helpful to clarify sort of the concern and, uh, and danger. So for the past few weeks, we've been talking in particular in Romans 14 about eating meat, which was ceremonially unclean. And there's a few reasons that it could be considered ceremonially unclean, and Paul doesn't actually specify which one it is. Uh, one, maybe it's tainted by blood. In the Mosaic Law, you weren't allowed to eat anything that still had the blood in it because blood was uh, seen as this sign of uh, life. And so you had to drain the blood out of any meat that you were to eat. So you couldn't eat a steak that's raw or whatever it might be. You had to have it well done. Another way that it could be considered ceremonially unclean is if it is the flesh of an unclean animal. So in the Old Testament, you had the difference between clean animals and unclean animals. One of the, the classic examples of that is pork. So if you, were a, uh, if you were a Jew, you could not eat bacon, you could not eat uh, pork sausage, you couldn't eat pork chops, any of those sorts of things. So maybe that is the, the reason for ceremonial uh, uncleanness, but I think it's more likely that this third reason is actually the reason that it was ceremonially unclean because we see a parallel in uh, the book of 1 Corinthians. And so the reason probably that he's talking about this uh, particular eating of meat is because this would have been meat that had been sacrificed to idols. And what would happen in the ancient world is that someone would offer a sacrifice, they would offer a sacrifice of meat, and then whatever is left over uh, of that sacrifice, the priest would take it, and he would take it to the meat market, and he would sell it there in the meat market. You see, you didn't have like Kroger and Tom Thumb and Market Street or uh, Sprouts or Whole Food or whatever it might be in order to buy your meat. You would buy your meat in the marketplace and pretty much all the meat that was available in the marketplace had been sacrificed to idols. And so the question becomes, can you eat the meat that is sacrificed to idols? So imagine, if you will, that you're convinced, you're stronger in the faith. You are convinced that meat that is sacrificed to idols doesn't defile you that what goes into a man is not what defiles him, but what comes out, as Jesus has said. You're convinced that you can eat this meat that had been sacrificed to idols because you yourself didn't sacrifice it to the idols. It's just meat. You just bought it at the meat market. And so you decide that you can eat this meat with your strong conscience. But imagine, if you will, that someone with a weaker conscience is with you. Someone else who has come out of sort of paganism. Someone else who has a particular uh, bent towards idol worship. And they are with you and you, they feel pressured by you to eat this meat which had been sacrificed to idols. 
And then if they eat this meat that has been sacrificed to idols, even though their conscience tells them they shouldn't do it, even though their conscience tells them that it's wicked or morally wrong or whatever it might be, but they do it, and then they do it again, and then they do it again, and pretty soon they find themselves thinking, well, if I can eat meat that's been sacrificed to idols, maybe I can just sacrifice to idols. And so now all of a sudden they're no longer in the church, but they're in the temple. That's kind of the the slippery slope that Paul is talking about about here. That's kind of the chain of consequence that we're talking about. So now you see the danger. We aren't just talking about eating meat. All of a sudden now we're talking about faith and worship and idolatry and identity and those sorts of things, which means it's not worth it. That's what Paul's saying here. Do not for the sake of food do these things. Diet and days and drinking and these kinds of issues, they're so small. They're so insignificant. But what's at stake here is far bigger than the issues themselves. The other day, for whatever reason, I decided I'm going to Google silly reasons for church splits or silly reasons for church fights. And I found what would really be a really funny list if it wasn't uh, so sad. There was one pastor who mentioned that uh, he had a number of members leave the church when they changed coffee brands. They actually switched from Folgers to Starbucks. Now, we actually, just starting this January, we actually changed our coffee brands. We went to Folgers, not quite to Starbucks. We went to something that is uh, somewhere in the middle or something like that. Not that Starbucks is the top of the line. Uh, but uh, we didn't lose any members, so congrats, Parkway. We're, we are more mature than that church. Another pastor mentioned that he had uh, members leave his church whenever they changed the coffee strength from three scoops to four scoops or four scoops to three scoops or whatever it might be. Someone mentioned an argument uh, that led to a fight uh, that uh, was over whether or not they should serve deviled eggs. Why? Because it has the word devil in it, right? Another church had this big, huge fight over whether or not they could call it a pot luck because Christians don't believe in luck. So we should call it a pot blessing or pot providence or something uh, like that. And then one guy mentioned this huge fight that his church had over the length of the worship pastor's beard. I'm not making this up just to make fun of Tim Hollis, but Tim better hope that people from that church who left that church don't come here because he looks like Tom Hanks on the island in Castaway or a rejected Duck Dynasty son or Rip Van Winkle halfway through his nap. These are all real situations, apparently. Uh, I mean, people could have been lying. But they're sad. They're trivial. These are so insignificant. But as Solomon says, it's the little foxes that spoil the vine. Likewise, it's these little issues, these audiophora issues, which don't actually matter. They're they're the ones that end up coming in and dividing the church. That's what it's talking about here. These little things like meat and drink and dancing and dominoes and wearing pants and playing cards And there are two responses to the fact that these are really small and trivial and insignificant. The immature say, it's no big deal. Get over it. Whereas the mature, the godly response is to say, it's only meat. It's only drink. It's no big deal, so I'll get over it. There's a profound difference between those two perspectives. Paul's point is that if it's no big deal, it's only food then why not be willing to lay it down for the sake of others? In other words, Paul will say, you have liberty. 
That's the word that he's going to give. He's going to agree with the theology of the strong throughout this passage and going to say there is nothing inherently wrong with these audiophora issues. You have liberty, but don't love your liberty more than another's life. This point is Christ gave up his life. Can you not give up meat or drink for the sake of your brother or sister? Paul says everything is indeed clean. Again, he agrees with the theology of the strong. Everything is indeed, uh, indeed clean. Now remember, we're talking about morally issue, uh, neutral issues. We're talking about issue, issues that are adiaphora. Don't just rip this out of its context and use this passage somehow as a proof text to show that heroin is clean or that adultery is clean or that blasphemy is clean or that pornography is clean or something like that. Jesus is going to make a similar distinction in, uh, in Mark 7, I think we read it a little bit last week, but I want to go back to that, starting in verse 18. And he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Listen to this, thus he declared all foods clean. And he, that's Jesus, said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him, for from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts sexual morality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. So meat and wine and other foods are clean, but sexual morality and coveting and envy are not. That which goes into the stomach is clean, but that which comes out of the heart is defiled. So Paul isn't saying here in Romans 14 that absolutely everything is clean, Paul is saying that nothing in this context of audiophora issues is prohibited. Nothing of these audiophora issues is unclean or sinful or wrong in and of themselves. So all of these audiophora issues are clean and thus acceptable, but, and this is his point here, but not if partaking would cause another to stumble. Not if partaking would grieve a brother. And in the context, that means to destroy a a brother. In that case, it isn't just unclean, but it's actually wrong. And that word wrong there that you see, to make another stumble, it's wrong for anyone to make another stumble. That word wrong there, most of the time uh, in uh, in, uh, in our English translations, it uh, actually is the word evil or wicked. It's sinful. It's not just wrong. It's wicked to make a brother uh, stumble. So this sets up a contrast to what we'll see in verse 21 of that which is good. So it's wrong to make another brother stumble, but it's good in verse 21 not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. So we saw that it's wrong or evil to cause another to stumble. Here it's good to not cause your brother to stumble. There's a wordplay. In fact, the difference in Greek between the word for good and the word for wrong or wicked or evil, uh, that word, uh, the difference is, uh, is just one letter from kakos to kalos. So based on what we've seen throughout Romans 14, we've actually seen that there are three categories for weak and strong Christians. There are those things which are good, there are those things which are acceptable, and then there are those things which are sin or evil or wrong. There's good, there's acceptable, and there's bad or sin or evil. What is good? Well, there's two things in the context of Romans 14 that are considered good. It's good to have a strong conscience that rests 
in the sufficiency of God's Word on these issues. It's good. Whether you partake of eating meat or drinking wine or not, it's good to have a strong conscience. Paul will later say, blessed is the person who doesn't uh, judge themselves for what he approves. So that is a good thing. But it's also good to lay down that freedom in order to not cause another brother or sister to stumble. So that's what's good. Those are the two things that are good. What is acceptable? Well, in the context of Romans 14, it's acceptable to not eat. It's acceptable to not drink, to not partake in these other audiophora issues because of a weak faith. Paul will say, you don't have to do it. If your faith is weak on this particular issue, then don't do it. It isn't sin, but it also isn't best. It's acceptable. It's not good because you're leaning on a crutch instead of leaning fully on Christ in this particular issue. So that's what's acceptable, to not eat or drink uh, as a matter of a weak faith. But it's sin, it's evil, it's wrong, it's wicked to do either of two things. One, to eat when your conscience says that you shouldn't, or to eat when you cause another to stumble. That's sin. And this is true whether we're talking about eating meat, or drinking wine, or anything that causes your brother to stumble. That's Paul's point here. This is where we draw the implication out from just eating meat, which has been sacrificed to idols, which is probably not anyone's concern here, to drinking wine. Again, the context is uh, that which has been sacrificed to idol, which is no one's concern here. This is where we can draw this implication beyond these first century examples and move this into the 21st century because he says, or to do anything that causes your brother to stumble. Any inherently neutral thing that causes stumbling would fit into this category. And since Paul mentions alcohol, I want to deal with this. As we've said many times before, I don't care if you drink. I don't care if you don't drink. I care that you not misinterpret God's Word. I care that you not uh, think wrongly about what God has revealed. So why are we talking about alcohol? Well, there's two reasons that we're talking about alcohol this week. The first one is because this is a really, really good modern example of this uh, thing that the weak and the strong fight over in the church. It is the contemporary cultural equivalent of eating meat. So if you want a really good example of something from the 21st century that kind of mirrors what's going on in the first century, then the, uh, the question of drinking alcohol uh, relates. The second reason, the more important reason that I'm mentioning it, uh, is because Paul explicitly mentions drinking wine here in, uh, in this passage. And so it would be unfaithful for me not to uh, at least touch upon it. So in order for us to understand what he's talking about when he talks about uh, wine, we need to understand that Paul's context is really radically different from our own. In the 21st century, in our particular context in the 21st century, that is post-prohibition Bible Belt, Christians fight over whether or not it's ever acceptable, whether or not it's ever uh, wise, whether or not it's ever good to drink uh, alcohol. That is not Paul's concern at all. That's not what he means here whenever he says drink wine. In fact, that has not been the concern in any other context, any other country, other denominations, uh, any other century, uh, whatever it might be. That's not been the concern in any other context other than our own. In the first century, nearly everyone drank alcohol. Whether you are a man or a woman, whether you are a Jew or a Gentile, Paul tells Timothy to drink a little wine. The disciples all drank wine. Jesus 
drank wine. If you think that drinking is always sinful, or at least always unwise, then you need to wrestle with what that implies about your theology of the perfect God-man who always did what is good and wise. So whether alcohol was sinful or unwise wasn't the context in the first century. In the context of the early church, the issue wasn't wine itself, but as with meat, we're talking about wine which has been sacrificed to idols. That's the concern. When you would offer a sacrifice of meat, you would also offer a sacrifice of wine. And since that wine had been sacrificed to idols, could you drink it? Or was it ceremonially, ritualistically unclean? That's the concern here. This has nothing to do with any of our 21st century objections to drinking. So if you want to use this verse in particular to prohibit uh, alcohol, then you also have to use it to prohibit beef jerky. And steak, because it talks about eating meat. If you want to use this verse to say that you can't go to a bar, you also can't go to Arby's. Why? Because they have the meats, right? That's the same sort of idea. So that's the, the question, that's the concern. When Paul says it's not good to do anything that causes your brother to stumble, what does he mean? It doesn't mean don't do anything that someone else might be offended by. If that's the standard good luck. Raise your hand this week if you've offended somebody. All right? Those of you who aren't raising your hand, you're offending me by not raising your hand, right? In our culture, everybody's offended by everything. The very first time that I preached here, I don't know if I should say this, this person might still be here, who knows, but uh, someone found it offensive that I would bring a bottle of water on stage. Somehow that kind of profaned and defiled the preaching of uh, God's Word, and I thought I was just thirsty, right? We're always offending people. So am I sinning because you might be offended that I have a bottle of water? No, I'm not. That's not the context. Of course not. Paul isn't saying that you shouldn't do anything that others would find offensive or that others would judge you for. That's fear of man. That's not what he's talking about here. Paul offended the Judaizers by hanging out with Gentiles, by making circumcision theologically irrelevant. Jesus was called a drunkard. He offended the Pharisees all the time by healing on the Sabbath and by hanging out with tax collectors and sinners and so forth. So Paul's point can't be that you just need to never offend others. The concern is that people would actually sin by following your example because of their weak conscience. Remember that historical context, the meat market and the sacrifice example. That's the danger. Not that others would simply be offended that you were eating meat, but they might also eat meat and then eventually find themselves worshiping those gods that that meat was sacrificed to. Or imagine this uh, scenario. Imagine that I really like shrimp, which I do, by the way. But now imagine that you hate shrimp. For whatever reason, you think it's offensive, or you think that anyone who eats shrimp is gross or sinning or unwise. So does that mean now that when I go home uh, to visit my parents this weekend, that I'm not allowed to eat. If my mom makes her kind of uh, world-famous fried shrimp, that I can't eat it. No, that's not what that means. Does that mean that I can't go to Long John Silver and order a fish and shrimp platter? No, that's not what it means. I'm not going to go to Long John Silver because I don't think that's good shrimp. But the reason I'm not going to go is because you might somehow be offended that I'm there. But let me give you this illustration. I think this is more the point of the text. Imagine that you don't just dislike shrimp, but you actually have a very severe, serious shellfish allergy. And now imagine that I know about it. So when I have you over for dinner, am I going to serve you shrimp? 
Maybe if you're Corey Steiner who punched me in the face, I would, right? Maybe if you're the person who was offended about my bottle, then I would. But of course not. I'm not going to serve you that. I'm not going to do something that I know is going to actually cause harm to you. That's a physical example of this spiritual danger. Do not do something that if others were to join you in doing, it would actually spiritually injure them. It would cause them to sin against their own conscience. This has nothing to do with whether or not someone judges you, whether or not someone is offended by you. This has everything to do with whether or not someone would actually sin in following you in your freedoms because of their weakness. That's the context of Romans 14. If eating meat or drinking wine sacrificed to idols might encourage a weaker brother or sister to sin against their conscience, then don't do it around them. Because even though for you eating meat sacrificed to idols is not sinful, actually offering sacrifices to idols is sinful, and that's the danger that Paul wants to watch out for with the weaker brother or sister. Let's look in verse 22. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. Again, we need to start with the importance of context. When it says here to keep your faith between yourself and God, this has nothing to do with whether or not you should evangelize, whether or not you should engage in missions or talk about religion with friends or anything like that. The faith that he's referring to isn't saving faith, isn't faith in the gospel itself. It's rather faith regarding these audiophora issues, these matters of the conscience. So drink your wine, eat your meat, but not when around those with a weaker conscience who are likely to stumble from your example. Go climb El Capitan, but don't invite some weaker brother to join you. And even as Paul is going to rebuke the strong, he shows that he fundamentally agrees with their theological convictions. He says, blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. Freedom is a blessing. It's a good thing to recognize, I have liberty. Even if you choose to lay down that liberty for the sake of love, it's still a good blessing to have and to recognize that freedom, the freedom to eat meat, the freedom to drink wine, or any other morally neutral concern. So we see in this passage that there is both a burden and a blessing and a curse. Paul would say in the context of Romans 14 that it's a burden to have a weak conscience. It's a burden to have this weak conscience that's bound to traditions and rules and regulations, to be conscious, uh, constantly anxious about trivial matters like food and drink and days. That's a burden, and Paul's desire for you is that you might not be burdened, that you might not be anxious about these trivial things that are morally neutral. That's the burden. What's the blessing? Paul says it's a blessing to have freedom, to recognize that you have freedom even if you also have a responsibility to lay down that freedom for others at times. But it's a curse, according to Paul, to use your freedom to the destruction of others or to rebel against your own conscience. And that's what verse 23 addresses. Paul writes, But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith, for whatever does not proceed from faith is Sin. So if you had any uncertainties about the seriousness of what Paul is addressing here, the seriousness of stumbling, the serious, uh, seriousness of grieving, the seriousness of being destroyed, that should melt away in light of this verse. 
the concern could not be more sober. Paul writes, whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats. If you've been following along the book of Romans, you are familiar with the language of condemnation. The entire book of Romans is about how do we escape condemnation? How can we be justified? And here we see that faith, that is the instrument of our justification, we are saved by grace alone through faith alone, that faith can't survive continued rebellion against the conscience. Continuing to do something that you think is sinful, even if it's not sinful. Now, this is the most difficult section in our text this morning, so I want to spend a bit of time kind of unpacking what it does and doesn't mean. First, one of the things that we need to recognize is that Paul is not talking about one, uh, some sort of one-time act of going against the conscience. That's not what he's talking about. He's not saying if you eat one time against your conscience, you are condemned, you are damned. That is not what he's talking about. This would be manifest in a series of presumptuous, habitual, unrepentant acts. That's why I use the illustration of the uh, eating meat sacrificed to idols and say that you do it, and you do it, and you do it, and you do it, and after a series of doing it, then all of a sudden you find yourself offering sacrifices in the temple. We know that he's not talking about just a one-time act from other passages that say that liars or thieves or adulterers or so forth will not inherit the kingdom. We know that those are referring to those who persist in habitually or unrepentantly um, uh, carrying out these sins. So why doesn't Paul just come right out and mention that he's talking about this sort of lifestyle and this sort of progressive nature and not a mere one-time act? Because he's a good pastor. Because he recognizes that we are very quick to justify any number of transgressions that we think is acceptable. As long as we think that there are two mulligans, we're going to be willing to sin twice. If we think, I'm only condemned when I disobey the fifth time, how many times are we going to be willing to disobey? Three or four, right? Why not? It's a get-out-of-jail-free sort of idea. And so Paul recognizes no amount of transgression is safe. No amount of transgression is acceptable. So he doesn't actually give us a formula that we might long for. But second, how can Paul say that whoever has doubts is condemned? We spent the entire book building up to the crescendo that we saw in Romans 8, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Is Paul saying that you can lose your salvation? That's not what he's saying. But he's saying there may very well be those who are going through the motions of Christianity who are not Christians. There are those with some of the outward actions but without the inward affections. In honor of St. Patty's Day, I want to tell you a little bit uh, of a story about… We have a, a friend who is a pastor in Northern Ireland. He's a church planner uh, there, and so he came out to eat with us, and so we took him to the bastion of food in the Metroplex, Babe's Chicken. And, uh, and so he had never experienced anything like this. They don't have a Babe's Chicken there in, uh, in Northern Ireland. And so we take him there, and uh, he goes to the bathroom, and we tell the waitress, we say, hey… Our buddy, for whatever reason, he just likes to speak with an Irish accent. You just got to play along. So the entire meal, he's speaking with his normal accent, and she thinks he's just some weirdo. And, uh, and so a, a, a couple of years later, he's back in town. We take him again to Babe's Chicken, this time to another Babe's Chicken uh, location, and, uh, and we decide, let's all speak in Irish accents and see if she can guess who, which one of us is actually Irish. 
And so uh, Zach, Tim, Carl, and I, and John all spoke in Irish accents, and she thought I was Irish, so I was very pleased with myself. But I'm not Irish. But that's kind of the image here, right? It's possible to go through the motions of Christianity without actually being a Christian. Faith is actually the accent of the Christian, even if some of us can fake it. So Paul's concern here isn't that you can actually lose your justification. His concern is that some people who are in the church might manifest that they never were actually justified in the first place by their response to sin as they continue to sin and sin and sin and sin. So let me be as clear and strong as possible. You cannot lose your salvation. Some of you need to hear that this morning. Some of you who are humble and contrite and who are scared need to hear you cannot lose your salvation. But there's others of us in this room who need to hear this, that if you persist in sinning arrogantly, unrepentantly, indifferently, you will be condemned. You will be damned. Not because you've lost your salvation, but because you never had it in the first place. No matter how many prayers that you prayed or what prayer that you prayed, no matter if you walked down an aisle or got in those baptismal waters, no matter how much you give to the church or how often you come or how much Scripture you can quote or whatever it might be. Paul says whether your conscience is right or wrong when it comes to these adiaphora issues, do not violate your conscience. When it comes to issues of explicit sin, it doesn't matter what your conscience says. You might meet someone who says, well, I have a free conscience about sleeping with my girlfriend. It doesn't matter. Your conscience is wrong. You need to not listen to it. You listen to God's Word. But when it comes to these adiaphora issues, when it comes to these morally neutral issues, even if your conscience is wrong, Don't violate your conscience. If you think that eating or drinking would be sinful, even if you're wrong, then refrain. This is where I would disagree with some pretty common advice when it comes to these adiaphora issues. For instance, let's say that uh, Larry thinks drinking is wrong. All right, Larry thinks that drinking is wrong, and so Hank, his buddy, tells him, you know what you need to do? You just need to have a little drink as a means to loosen up, strengthen the conscience. Well, I agree with the need for Larry's conscience to be strengthened. I disagree with the means in light of this text. That's kind of like telling someone that the best way to learn how to free climb is just jump on El Capitan, see how it goes. No, long before you jump up on the mountain, you spend months or even years in the gym and at home preparing for that challenge. The way to reshape your conscience on these issues is not to violate it, The way to reshape the conscience is to strengthen it with faith, to go to Scripture, to better understand what it does and doesn't say. At the end of the day, this is always an issue of theology. All matters of faith and morality boil down to what we think about God and His Word. So instead of telling Larry to just have a drink, maybe instead Hank should say, let's read this article about alcohol together. And then at the end of the day, let's talk about it. Let's work through it. And then if all else fails, just to say, you know what, it doesn't really matter. I don't care. My life doesn't hinge on whether or not you drink. And if Larry gets to the point where he can realize that it isn't morally wrong, then he can partake freely without sinning against his conscience. But until then, he should refrain. Otherwise, he's not acting in faith. Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin, according to Paul. I wish we had time to really explore this because I think this is a huge Uh, passage that's very profound, but we'll just have to summarize. In short, this statement should be nothing short of shocking. 
It means that anything can be sin. When most of us church folk think of sin, we think of really bad things that are inherently sinful, like blasphemy or adultery or murder. But there's another category of sin that includes things which are not inherently sinful, but they're sinful on the basis of implication or context. They're sinful on the basis of your inward motivation. What's so shocking about this is that absolutely anything that you can think of would fit into this category. Preaching can be sinful. What I'm doing right here, right now, can be sinful. Those who preach the prosperity gospel, those who preach moralism or humanism or pragmatism or whatever it might be, do not please God. Listening to a sermon, attending church can be sinful. If your motivation is just simply to check it off a list or it's lust or pride or whatever it might be. Helping a little old lady cross the street is sinful if you're doing it so that you can steal her purse on the other side or so you can wiggle your way into her inheritance. Now, this doesn't mean because these things might be sinful that you shouldn't do them anyway. It doesn't mean that you don't go to church or you don't help someone cross the street if you aren't sure if you have the right motivation. It's better to do the right thing with the wrong heart than to do the wrong thing with the wrong heart. But it does mean that we should have a greater appreciation for just how pervasive sin is and how vast is Christ's grace to us to forgive us not only our bad deeds but even our supposedly good deeds. And I want to end by considering this question. How is faith this dividing line between sin and not sin? That's what we've seen here in this uh, particular verse. Why is it that Paul writes, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin? And I think we can answer that by asking another question regarding these twin dangers that we see in this text. And that is, why would someone eat or drink even if they thought doing so was probably sinful? Or why would someone eat or drink even if they knew that doing so would cause someone else to stumble? Why is it? Why is it that we might do something that we know is sin, or why is it that we would do something that we know would cause another to stumble into sin, that we would destroy our brother? And the answer should be obvious to anyone in this room who has ever sinned, which is everyone in this room, and that is we always think that doing so will make us happier. We're all chasing pleasure. We're all chasing joy and satisfaction and contentment and happiness. That's our motivation for everything, absolutely everything that we do. When we dance, when we drink, when we eat, when we sleep, when we work, when we rest, when we play basketball, when we weave baskets and on and on, we could go, we, and I mean humanity, not just believers, believers and unbelievers alike, we always incline towards what we think will bring us the most pleasure, which means that when we eat or drink, even when we think that it might be sinful, or when we know that doing so will cause harm to another, we act in unbelief. You see, what we're doing in that moment is we don't trust that God is really the source for our happiness. We don't really trust that God is the source for our contentment, that God is the source for our joy, that God is the source of our justification. We trust this instrument, meat or wine, which God can use to bring about joy. We trust the instrument. We trust the gift instead of the giver. We find happiness and contentment in meat or wine rather than in the sufficiency and the supremacy of the Word and work of Christ. You see, the danger for the strong and the weak is really the same that both the strong and the weak treasure something over and above the word and work of Christ. That the weak 
are going to cling to these non-binding traditions and rules while the strong cling to their rights and freedoms. But both evidence unbelief that God is better and His Word is sufficient. So what's the solution? It should be obvious if you've been here over the past uh, few months, the past 14 chapters with us. We see it woven throughout this context in hints and whispers. The answer is the Gospel. The kingdom of God, as we read last week, is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy. You see, Christ died to free us not only from the wages of sin, yes and amen to Him freeing us from the wages of sin, but also from the burdens of the Mosaic Law's constant division between clean and unclean. That's the word to the weak. But in doing so, He also gave us this law of love that we would lay down our rights and privileges for others. That's the word to the strong. And the word to both the weak and the strong is that the unity and the harmony of the body of Christ is far more important than whether you eat or whether you drink or whether you don't. So that we wouldn't judge or despise each other, but so that we would love and serve each other for the good and glory of our God and Christ's body. So let's pray. And then we will uh, ask the uh, deacons to come forward as we eat and drink of communion together as a sign and celebration of righteousness, peace, and joy in our King, Jesus. Father, we thank You for Your passage this morning and pray that it would press us. Lord, that where we are strong, that we might be challenged, that we might be encouraged to lay down our rights and privileges for the sake of others that we might love others more than we love our own liberty and freedom. Where we're strong, Lord, we might, uh, where we're weak, Lord, we might not uh, simply say, I'm just going to persist in my weakness, Lord, but we might desire to be walked free of those crutches. We might cling to Your Word and its sufficiency. And we might strengthen our consciences. And I pray more than anything else, Lord, that You would unify this body that weak and strong might dwell together for our good and for your glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.